Today's a good day to talk about crisis. Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. But don't fold up like a bad deck of cards, and don't come unraveled like a cheap sweater. He said, be of good cheer, for I've overcome this world. But I don't care who you are, whether you're religious or unreligious, you're going to have trouble. About the only thing common to all of us is trouble, right? You look bewildered. Is that a hard question? Now, we all know that the Dow Jones can go down. We know the NASDAQ, we know housing values can all go down. Venture capital can go down. Consumer confidence can go down. Employment can go down. The auto industry can go down. Y'all glad you came so far? Mm. The banking system can go down, commercial real estate can go down, and foreign markets can go down. In 2008, we watched the whole world go down, remember? Some of you were affected by that. People lost homes over that. So my question is, is anything going up? Well, especially in the context of the church, in crisis, some things do. The opportunity to serve people in need, that's going up. The opportunity to trust God when trusting isn't easy, that's going up. The opportunity to build a faith that will stand the storms in life that have battered you down, that's going up. The opportunity to create a community where we can be real and open and honest and love each other and pray for each other and support each other, that's always going up. We know it's going up because the power of God still sustains the universe because the sacrifice of Jesus is still sufficient to forgive human sin, because the presence of the Holy Spirit still guides and comforts people, because the Bible is still God's Word and it hasn't changed, because prayer still gets answered, because the gospel still changes lives, because love still overcomes bigotry, because faith still overcomes despair because the tomb is still empty, because the church is still pressing on, because Jesus, ah, He's still Lord, because the promise of heaven is still the ultimate hope, and it's closer today than yesterday, and because the kingdom of God's doing very well and will never need a stimulus package to bail it out. Amen. We live in a time when crises come and crises go, so it has always been. And so it will always be in this world. And yet one undeniable truth about a crisis is that there is nothing on earth all of us would love to avoid more than a crisis. But what if we could? So imagine for a moment you had a child, and when that child enters the world, for the first five minutes of that child's life, you're given a script of what that child's life will be, their entire life. And with that script, you're given an eraser. And with that eraser, you can edit the script and remove anything you'd like from the story of your child's life. What if the script said your child's going to have learning disabilities? Or what if it said your child will get into high school? Or he'll make a great circle of friends, but one of those friends will die of cancer. Then after high school, they will actually get into a college they wanted to attend. But while there, they're going to be in an unfortunate car crash, face a long recovery and difficult depression. A few years later, they'll get a great job, and yet they'll lose that job in an economic downturn. Then a little while after that, they'll be married, but somewhere in the marriage, they'll face the grief of a divorce. So you get this script of your child's life, 
and you got five minutes to edit it, what would you erase? As a parent, wouldn't you want to take out all this stuff that would cause any pain, any grief, and any hardship? And the answer obviously is, well, yeah. Now, I'm part of a generation of moms and dads that are called by psychologists helicopter parents. And don't be looking at me, some of you are too. And and that just got the title helicopter parents because we choose to hover over our children always rushing in to prevent any kind of harm or failure from befalling them. We don't want them to be hurt in their educational lives, their relational lives, their sports lives. We want to make sure nobody's mistreating them, nothing's disappointing them, not ever letting them learn from their own experience or mistakes or from the inevitable failures we all face as we walk through this thing called life. And as parents, You know, their hope is to turn the child's life into some sort of a greenhouse where the kids are able to experience one unobstructed success after another. Let me tell you what you get when that happens. You get a freak. That's what you get. That is impossible. But we're just talking, just just parents. If you could wave a magic wand and you could erase every failure, every setback, all the suffering, all the pain, are you sure, absolutely sure, it would be best for that child? Would it cause them to grow up to be a better, stronger, more generous, more caring, more true-hearted human being? Or is it possible that in some way people actually grow, even need to some extent adversity, setback? difficulty, and heartache to reach the fullest level of humanity and development and growth. Holding that question in mind for a few more moments, let me share an inconvenient truth from the Bible you don't want to hear. It's in James 1, verse 2. Brothers, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Let endurance, or perseverance, finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. God's purpose in every trial is not only to ultimately deliver you, but hopefully to develop you. It's a twofold deal here, and it's about the only way He can do it. Or Peter who writes, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you partake in the sufferings of Christ, so you may be overjoyed when His glory does get revealed. Or from St. Paul, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And when he wrote these words, St. Paul was in prison in chains. He had been arrested. He was being oppressed by the Roman government. He's shortly going to be executed, and yet he calls his troubles light and momentary compared to the eternal weight of glory. So I don't even know what you're facing. You don't know what I'm facing. Paul says, at best, it's light and momentary. So you feel better? little bit. He says that out of the worst of times, something good just may come that will outweigh all the bad. Mm. 
If we could actually see the end, we might welcome what's going on now. You know, adversity, challenge, setback, and hardship are never anything we look forward to. But can God be present in them? Can He help us to learn through them? Can we grow stronger through them? I want to keep that in mind as we now tackle a guy who went through as many crises as anybody mentioned in Scripture, and his name is Joseph. And when we first meet this kid, he hadn't had a problem in the world. He hadn't been in any crisis that we know of. Everything is going straight up. Genesis 37 says Joseph was a young man of 17. He was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Billa, the sons of Zilla, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about him. In other words, he was the kind of kid that didn't have very much trouble ratting out his brothers when they did bad things. Now, we don't know what was going on, and we don't know how bad his brothers were being. It doesn't say we don't know. But then the writer makes this comment. But Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made for him a richly ornamented robe. Maybe we could say today, maybe he got him a Lamborghini or something, okay? I mean, you know, update it. So when we first meet Joseph, he's got a problem with some of his brothers. And apparently, every time they had act up, he runs home to daddy. Truth is, the writer is telling us about the family dynamics here. Just watch this. Joseph's daddy is Jacob. He had two wives. The first wife he worked seven years for, her name was Rachel. And the Bible says she was hot, she was a knockout, she was beautiful. He laid down seven years to get that woman, got cheated by Laban and had to work seven more, and he said it seemed to him but a day. Girls, wouldn't you like to marry somebody like that? <laughs> of course, a day with the Lord is a thousand years to some of the rest of you married people, but anyway. <laughs> then he had another wife named Leah. That was his second favorite of the two. Well, Rachel couldn't have any children, so she said to Jacob, crazy woman, since I can't have children, and Leah is having them all over the place, you can have some children by my maidservant, Bilhah. And Leah sees that, and she says, well, I'm not going to be outdone. And she says, that's a good idea. So she says to Jacob, hey, Jake, I'm going to close up shop, but you can have children with my maidservant, Zilpha. They're passing the women around here. Are y'all listening to this? This is in the Bible. I mean, these guys make the Kardashians look normal. Really, right here in Scripture. This is a reality TV show. So Jacob has sons from Leah and from their, her two servants, Billah and Zilpha, but none from his favorite wife, Rachel. So in terms of family dynamics, that means that the sons of Billah and Zilpha are going to be at the lowest level of status in the family. And then Joseph comes along, and as the miracle son of Rachel, he becomes the number one son of his dad's number one wife. And like no other, he makes his daddy's eyes light up when he walks in the room. He is really daddy's boy. And so one day his dad gives him a very special coat. The King James Bible describes it as a coat of many colors. But whatever it was, it was beautiful. And the fact he got it is eating away at his brothers. Now it looks like Joseph's got the world by the tail. He's got a rich daddy. 
He's got a daddy favored by God. He is the firstborn of the favorite wife in old age. Genesis 39, 6 says, we're told that Joseph was well-built and a handsome man. I mean, this kid, he's a hunk of hunk of burning love. He's, he's, he's got a rich daddy. He's got a, a coat of many colors. He's got preferential treatment. He's entitled. He hadn't got a problem. If he, anything hurts or he gets a bobo, he can run to daddy. Daddy will make it all better. Not only that, he's a knockout guy, well-built and handsome. Scripture put that in there. He's physically impressive. And along with that, we're going to see just how gifted he was as well. But there's one serious problem. Once they realize how their father loved Joseph more than them, the brothers hated him. And they couldn't speak a kind word to him. And Joseph, I think Joe's a little slow to pick up on this dynamic, don't you? Because we're told Joseph has a dream. And he goes out and tells it to his brothers. And it says they hated him all the more. Listen to Genesis 37, verse 5. Listen to this dream, old Joseph said. We were out in the field tying up bundles of grain. Suddenly my bundle stood up, your bundles all fell down and bowed before mine. Isn't that a cool dream? <laughs> you, you think these brothers are happy about this dream? You think they're excited for Joseph? Nobody said, praise God. Bless you, brother. Isn't that good? No. In fact, his brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of what he had said in his dream. Now, I'm thinking if Joseph has an ounce of social intelligence, I would say, Joe, if you have any more dreams for crying out loud, shut up, keep them to yourself. But he has another dream and he tells it to his brothers. You know, folks, there's a cure for almost everything, and almost everything has a limit, but not stupid. <laughs> stupid just doesn't have a limit. He said, listen, boys, I had another dream. The sun, the moon, and 11 stars bowed down before me. Isn't that cool? I mean, this time the sun, the moon, and stars are bowing down to me. Don't you love these dreams? When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come down and bow down to the ground before you? Even Jacob, his daddy, is miffed. But his brothers became increasingly angry and jealous of him. And finally, the brothers can't take it anymore. And one day they get him off by himself. They take his coat. They sell Joseph to a caravan headed to Egypt where he'll be sold into slavery. And knowing they could never tell their father the truth, they covered Joseph's coat with animal blood, convincing dad that a wild animal had killed him. Literally overnight, Joseph has lost his status, his home, his financial resources, his parents, his future occupation. He's lost his culture. He's in Egypt, lost his family, his friends, everything. Now, before this, if he had a problem, if his world got shaky, he could run to daddy who had wealth and power. But now where's his security? Now, before you were to ask, if we were to ask Joseph, he would have told you, hey, I'm the number one son of my dad's number one wife, and I wear the robe in this family. But now, what's his identity? Before this, if you'd asked him about his dreams, he would have said, I'm going to be the greatest achiever in my family. They're all going to bow down. The sun, the moon, the stars, they're all going to be at my feet one day. 
But now, what's his purpose? What's become of his dream? Truth is, to one degree or another, what happened to Joseph will happen to everybody in this room to some degree in your life. For the most part, we live in what is called, our thinking is, normal life. Anybody ever watched that movie a few years ago, Wyatt Earp, Doc Holliday? I know Wyatt's just sitting down there having some whiskey and a little drink, and it's a little, little, little counseling session, I think, with Doc Holliday. And old Wyatt says, Doc, I just want a normal life. And the great theologian, Doc Holliday, <laughs> puts his drink down, and he says, Wyatt, there ain't no normal life. There's just life. Boy, it's true. It's flat true. But we have this illusion that there is, where circumstances are going to be just about what we would expect them to be. To one degree or another, we just live under this illusion that we're somewhat in control. You might feel secure because of your bank account or your investments or because of your health or because you've got marketable talents and gifts. And with that sense of security, your identity would be pretty solid. You got the right job, the right education, the right resume, the right spouse, the right degree, the right experience, the right relationships, until one day when crisis invades our normal lives and all these illusions of control and security are suddenly revealed for what they always were. Maybe you lose your job. Maybe it's a divorce. Somebody you've been married to for decades says, hey, I'm out of here. Maybe you lose somebody that you love, or you go to the doctor's office and the body you've taken for granted for years has suddenly now defied you. Maybe you've been betrayed. Maybe you've been abandoned. Maybe your reputation's on the line. Maybe your son or daughter heads down an entirely different path than you had ever hoped or prayed for. And suddenly, when the illusion of control or security is all gone, when all of life's props are removed from all of us, we struggle just to make it through the day and inevitably will ask, why did this happen to me? Now, truth is, and I'm just being honest, there's almost never a good enough explanation at least nothing that clearly satisfies. At some point, Joseph must have asked the question too. Must have been his brother's fault. They hated him. They, they betrayed him horribly. Or maybe it's his own fault. He reveled in being the favorite son. He was always talking smack to his brothers that he never should have spoken. He was horribly insensitive. Oh, it's his dad's fault. His dad's the one who set up all this favoritism within the family. That's what created this mess in the first place. And yet, his dad grew up in a home that also played favorites. Jacob's father, who was Isaac, also had two sons, Jacob and Esau. And Jacob grew up knowing what it was like to have a brother, Esau, who was his dad's favorite. Esau was the football star. He was the hunter. He was the sports athlete. He made the, the, the venison and served it to his old man. Jacob was usually in the kitchen doing macrame with his mother, making muffins. And so he became his favorite. Watch this family history. That dynamic didn't start there. Isaac grew up with a father, Abraham. He had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. And he played favorites. This has been going on for three generations in this family. So that, besides why me, there's another less popular question. Why not you? 
why not me? With all the pain and suffering and hardship and grief in the world, did I really think I could get a free, you may pass go and collect $200? You get a, you get a free pass on trouble, betrayal, adversity? I wish it was true, but it's not true. And then eventually you get to the final question, what do I do now? Hmm? When that illusion of control gets revealed, with my security and my identity pretty well shaken, what do I have left to stand on? I thought I could stand on my health, my body, my marriage, my ability, my good intentions, my job, my talent, my friends, my reputation. And if you remember with me, during the high-tech stock boom of the late 90s and early 2000s, we thought the NASDAQ is always just going to power straight up and to the right until 2008 hit and the whole world shook. What's left? That's the question. What's left to stand on? So in this new reality where he's lost everything, Joseph gets sold to a man named Potiphar. And he wakes up the first morning in Egypt and he wonders, maybe this is one of those dreams. Maybe I'm going to wake up in my own bed with my own robe and my old life. But it's not a dream. He's lost everything. And nobody in Egypt and nobody in Potiphar's house cares that he was daddy's favorite. Nobody here is asking him about his dreams. He's an alien, a stranger. He doesn't even have a green card. He's an abducted, penniless, powerless slave. Got the picture? That's a long way from pretty boy got it made to a penniless, powerless slave. So what in the world does Joseph have left? Well, from the text, one thing but a pretty darn remarkable thing, one we take for granted when we're doing really good. We're told in Genesis 39, but the Lord was with Joseph while he was in the house of his Egyptian master. He wakes up, strange bed, strange house, strange culture, no friends, no prospects, no explanation. Why? Just one thing. He finds out he's not alone. The Lord was with Joseph. So what must that have been like to his soul? to wake up, to have lost everything, and discover that in the midst of all you're going through, God hadn't gone anywhere. He's right there with you. And because the Lord is with him, we know he has no more trouble, right? Everything works out great at the Pontifer house. He gets along wonderfully with Mr. Pontifer and Mrs. Pontifer and lives happily ever after. <laughs> Not so much. God's with him. He honors God. He resists temptations. And yet, through all of his obedience to God, the dude ends up in prison now, from slavery now to prison. And then the strangest thing happens, Scripture says. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. Uh, he gets, he's in a mess. He's in a stinking place. But even there, God shows him favor that, hey, I'm still with you. You're getting promoted even in slavery. You're over the house. You get into prison, you become the trustee. You get free Wi-Fi, open cell, access to the gym 24-7. You can go to the canteen. You got a coffee maker in your room. You got it all. Even in a bad place, God's giving you favor. God was with him. He falls and he falls and he falls until eventually he falls into the arms of God. And the strangest thing happens to people in slavery, to people in prison, to people in a hole. They find out God's still here. God is there. You know, you may be, feel lonely, but you're never alone. 
ever. This message is not about how if something bad happens to you, you just get back to being happy as soon as you can. As I said, the problem with why me question is there's rarely ever any answer that's good enough that'll satisfy. But the Bible says in the midst of all the loss and pain, there really is a Redeemer. And whether you're in an office suite or a prison cell, you really can discover like Joseph did, God is still there with you. And yet, when you're in the midst of a painful season, if you begin to wonder why me, we ask another question, does God care? Yeah. When the earth shakes, when your world gets shattered, when you don't know what to do, well, God, do you care at all? Remember what He said to Moses? I have seen the affliction of my people. I have heard their cries and I am come down to deliver them. There is not one thing He doesn't know about your life or your problem right now or your crisis. He's well aware of it. And I, uh, I think sometimes I have to remind myself of that. Does God care? Everybody in this room is either a thinker or a feeler. Neither way is right or wrong, it's just the way you are, the way you were made up and born. You know, you may have a heart that's compassionate, emotive, empathetic, or you could be a thinker, a cold, calculating machine. It's just the way you were made. It's not your fault. So Joseph is 17 years of old, he's got everything going for him till things turned upside down. So let's just guess which category Joseph might be in, thinker or feeler. Let me read some passages before you answer. Genesis 42, when he sees his brothers for the first time in 20 years, it says, Joseph turned away from them and began to weep, but then turned back and spoke. Then a chapter later at another encounter, we'll tell Joseph is so overwhelmed, he hurried out of the room and looked for a place to weep. He went to his private suite and he wept there. Two chapters later, another big moment. And Joseph wept so loudly, the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about him. Then again, when he's being reconciled to the brothers who sold him, Joseph threw his arms around Benjamin and wept. And then he kissed all his brothers and wept over all of them. Then later on, when he sees his father for the first time, as soon as Joseph appeared before his father, he threw his arms around him and wept a long time. And then in the very last chapter in Genesis, his father is on the deathbed. Joseph threw himself on his father and wept over him. So what do you think old Joe is, a thinker or a feeler? Why, he's the biggest crybaby in the Bible. More tears than any other character in Scripture. Seriously, there are a lot of tears in the Bible from the beginning to the end, and a lot of them belong to Joseph. I was thinking about that. When Joseph got to the end of his life, having shed all those tears, having been so horribly mistreated and represented, if you could have asked him, Joseph, when did you grow the most as a human being? When did you sort of get over your stinking self? When did you find God nearest to you? wonder what old Joe would have said. I think he would have said, when I was a slave. I think he would have said, when I was in prison, down at the bottom. And by the way, God is a bottom feeder. He is. It was there when I lost everything. I suddenly discovered God in a way I had not known or ignored. 
But what if Joseph had been given a script of Joseph's life, and he erased all those moments of pain from his son's life? so that Joseph could have experienced nothing but sunshine, prosperity, applause, and all of his dreams coming true. I think Joseph would never have met God the way he did. Does God care? It's an amazing thing about our Lord Jesus. The shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. His friend Lazarus dies. He loved him. His friends are all in grief. And Jesus walks up to the tomb. He's been dead four days. And Jesus cries. In Jesus, we have a God who cries, who cares for you. And we've all had moments where we've been in the company of somebody who's in such pain, the tears just flow like Niagara. That's a pretty intimate moment to share with somebody, being vulnerable. But if it's somebody you're very near to who's crying there with you, you might just on occasion wipe the tears from their face. It's not something you'd do for anybody, but somebody you're closest to in life. That's a very intimate thing to wipe the tear off somebody's face. Well, at the end of the book of Revelation, we're reminded, and I quote, the day is coming when God's dwelling place will now be among His people, and He will dwell with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now, that's the promise for then in heaven. But what about now? Now David writes in Psalms 56 verse 8, you keep track of all my sorrows. You have collected all my tears in your bottle. You have recorded every one in your book. And you know, some of you this morning are facing some real challenges in your life right now. A dream shattered, a heart broken, So imagine coming to God with all your hurt, your disappointment, your discouragement, your concern, your struggle, and all that hurt in your heart. Imagine the God of all power, almighty, all gentleness, reaching out His hand to you and wiping the tears from your eyes. That's our God. That's your God. He's the God we're told in Isaiah 53 who not only bore our sin on the cross, but bore our suffering and pain as well. And guys, I believe that right now, God is reminding us that whatever it is I'm going through, or you're going through, whatever setback, whatever difficulty, whatever worry, whatever fear, whatever you may have lost or afraid of losing, you are not alone. God, no matter how naughty you are, God will not forsake you, nor ever abandon you. That is the good news of the gospel. It is not, I'll be near you if your performance is up to date. No, no, no. If you've expressed faith in Jesus, He says, I will never forsake you. I will never betray you. I won't even remember your sin anymore. There is no, it it ain't even going in the cloud, the iCloud. It's gone. There's no record. It can never be retrieved. You can't break and enter that, that book. I don't think we're ever supposed to waste a crisis. You know, God wants to develop me, not if He delivers me and I don't learn anything, has it really been beneficial? No, no. But if you go to the gym and you lift weights and you're going to grow muscle, you're going to pick up some weights that hurt and leave you hurting the next day, but you're going to grow strong muscles. You won't grow as a human with success. 
David said in the Psalms, I was enlarged in distress. I wish it said success, but success has never made me better. Trial, trouble, crisis has always made me. Because when you got nothing left but God, God's all you got. You depend on Him, and He suddenly says, now I want you to get rid of the illusion of security in anything else you've been trusting. They're not wrong things, but they're wrong if you trust them. I'm the one that sets you up. I'm the one that'll keep you up. I'm the one that will deliver you. I'm the one that died for you. I'm the one, not friends, not business partners, not, not even a spouse. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Even when you deserve it, I won't. I will not. I love a God like that. Incredible God like that, right? So we may not know why we're experiencing what we are. So I've said, I'm just honest, there have been plenty of times I just said, I don't understand. I don't know why. Why couldn't this happen to Dennis Rodman? How come me? We're a little bit like that. I don't say that. I just think that. Has it ever crossed your mind too? Yeah. And I'm just thinking that. And I've told my wife many times, I don't know. I don't understand. He said, my thoughts are above your thoughts. My ways are above your ways. They're past finding out. I trust Him. Even when I don't know what in the world is going on, I trust Him. He's got my life in control. He said, my plans for you are good and not evil to give you a hope and a future. I'll put that in the bank. This trial will end. And when it's over, not only will I be delivered, I'm going to be stronger. I'm going to be closer to my God. I'm going to have my priorities in place, and God will restore. When Job faced an immeasurable test, was covered in boils, lost ten— I would like to go to a funeral for ten of your children, all dead. Lost his wealth, lost his cattle, lost his stock inventory, lost everything. And his wife said, just curse God and die. He said, though he slay me, I will trust in him. And what he didn't know was Satan was having a battle with God, that Job only loved God because he was rich. Take his wealth, he'll deny you and curse you to your face. God, who knows every heart, said, okay, you can take it, but you can't kill him. You can touch him, but you can't kill him. That encourages me. Satan is on a leash. He does not have unlimited all access to your life. So if God permits it, I trust Him. And when Satan was humiliated with the faith of Job, then God restored double everything he had lost. I was telling a friend earlier that, you know, people can steal from you, they can take things from you, but they can't take who you are, and they can't take what you know, and they can't take what you can do. That's yours forever. That stays marketable forever. Stuff can be replaced. But what you know and what you are and the skills God given you, that's yours for eternity. Don't you ever get too down on yourself thinking God can't fix this terrible mess. And so in the midst of all we may be facing, we discover God in a fresh new way. And I think God would say to you right now, I know, I know there's not a tear that's come from your eye from your first day to this day that I don't know about and that I don't care about. And one day the last tear will fall, and I'll wipe them all away, and I'll set everything right.
I want you to bow your head with me for a second. And I'm going to ask you to do something a little different in our service. Just everybody stand to your feet, would you? Just stand to your feet. You've been so wonderful. Just, just for another moment, stand to your feet. And here's what I feel to do. If you're in a crisis or a trial right now, like Joseph, don't understand it. Why me? Why not me? What now? I want to pray for you. I just want to pray for you as a group. You don't have to say anything, do anything. If you're in that midst of that deep yogurt right now, I don't want you to despair. And don't you waste this pain. Let it constantly in your future success remind you of what that was like, that your ultimate trust is in God. My ultimate provider is God, and He can set things right in a day. He is a mighty deliverer. He can turn the heart of a king any way he He can open the Red Sea. He can feed you with a dirty bird, a raven. He can open the womb of a 90-year-old woman. He can hold the sun in the sky. He can back it up for Hezekiah 10 degrees. So come on, give me your problem and tell me God is not the solution. But in the midst of the pain, he says, I care. I weep with you. Cast all your care on me. I care for you. Don't waste this crisis. So let me pray for you. If you're in that category, come just stand silently with me right here. I'm going to ask the team to just sing a verse or two. That's all, nothing long, but just come while they sing. And then I want to pray a prayer over you, and then you can return to your seat. So come on. Come on right now. Let's apply this message. God sees, and God cares, and God's there. He has not forsaken you. With our heads bowed, every eye closed, just relax. Aren't you just a picture of the Abba Father? He says, you can call me Daddy, Daddy. No protocol here. If you're his child, his daughter, then he's as compassionate as you would be to your own child. He loves you. And so maybe he needs to strip something away. Maybe he needs to set some new priorities. Maybe he needs to assure you that, hey, you're not in control. I am. I brought you here, I can set you up, I can put you down, and I can pick you right back up again. It's ultimate control. I get out of sync, you get out of sync, so sometimes God will shake everything that can be shaken so that what cannot be shaken remains. And you don't know what's there till there's a whole lot of shaking going on. But God's up to something good, not bad, and you're not being judged. Don't go there, okay? Heavenly Father, I love these people standing here in front of me, those watching by live stream. And these are people who need your healing touch right now. Sadness, discouragement, fear about tomorrow, uncertainty over the future. Lord Jesus, would you come alongside every one of these precious human beings right now and whisper in their heart, in their ear, just as I was with Joseph when he was a slave, just as I was with Joseph when he was in prison, I am with you right now. I am with you. I am for you. I will never forsake you. You are not alone. We thank you, Lord God, that in Jesus Christ, we have such a hope. Would you make it burn strongly in us and through us? We ask this morning, in the exalted name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to you be all glory. And we thank you for deliverance that's coming. But in the meanwhile, 
Remove anything from us that's a blockage. Strip from us any wrong thinking. Help us remove any idol that's there. And may we cast our care completely on you. You're the life giver. Every good gift comes from you, the Father of lights, in whom there's no shadow of turning. So we praise you. We're not victims. We're under construction. And something good is going to come out of this crisis. We thank you as we cry out to you in our affliction and in trouble. You hear and you will deliver. We, we, re, we reject vengeance. We reject hatred, unforgiveness, and bitterness. We choose to release it. You said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And so, Lord, we leave that job to you. But strengthen us, our resolve. Give our friends signs this week, just small signs and nudges. Hey, I'm here. I'm for you. You're going to make it. You're going to come through this. I'm with you. And we praise you and thank you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name. And everybody said with a big shout of victory, amen and amen to the glory of God. For more information on Summit Christian Center and Rick Godwin, visit SummitSA.com and connect with us on social media 